0: Thank you all. That was beautiful. This was one of those mornings where I heard that in practice, and I knew we were in for a treat. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn turn to Luke chapter 9. You can also follow along uh, on the screen or in your bulletin. Uh, We're going to continue our Lenten series looking at the relationship of uh, the Father and the Son, peering into the mystery of this aspect of the Trinity. As I thought about uh, this passage this week, I thought about an adult formation course that Uh, We hosted, uh, probably about a year ago at this point, uh, called When People Are Big and God is Small. Uh, We looked at a a book, we uh, read it together, it was a really rich discussion, and the premise of the book is how each and every one of us have, at least to some degree, some people-pleasing tendencies. Uh, No matter how kind of hardened or independent you might be, uh, there's always someone in your life who you would like to please. Please. Uh, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, a coworker, maybe it's a friend, a, a, a coach, a professor, whatever it might be. Uh, and so that tendency is in all of us, and of course there's family dynamics involved uh, in that as well. Uh, but what the book talked about is the trick to all this is when living for the approval of other people becomes more important Uh, than living for the approval of God and how fundamentally God's approval, what He says about us, uh, should be the most important thing to our lives. Well, as we come to our passage this morning, we see something that's really unique. There are really two instances in the Scriptures where God the Father speaks out of the heavens and voices His approval. And in both of those instances, His approval is directed to His Son, Jesus Christ. In effect, saying that He really is the only one who deserves the approval of God. We saw it a couple weeks ago at His baptism, when John the Baptist was there and the skies ripped open and the voice of God spoke in that moment. This morning, we see it in a story that is called The Transfiguration. And three gospel writers tell this story, but we're going to read Luke's account, We're going to read Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 28 uh, to 36. This is God's Word. Now, about eight days after these sayings, He, Jesus Christ, took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered, and His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. and They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one listen to him and when the voice had spoken jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen this is god's word let's pray father thanks for your presence with us thanks for the gift of worship that you give us the opportunity to to come together to sing your praises to reflect on your word to pray together we pray that your your spirit would be present with us now As we meditate on your word for the next few minutes, uh, that we would hear your voice and that we would listen. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Our passage tells a really powerful story that happened to Peter, uh, James, and John while they were with us, uh, when they were with Jesus one evening. The passage tells us that uh, they were accompanying Jesus when he went on top of a mountain To pray to the Father. If you look all throughout the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is consistently stealing away, sometimes from his disciples, oftentimes from the crowd, uh, to pray with the Father. Sometimes it's late in the evening. Sometimes it's early in the morning. But in this case, it tells us he takes Peter, James, and John with him. He goes up onto the mountain and he prays to the Father. The passage tells us that Peter, James, and John, they're tired. They're, They're drowsy. Uh, It's been a long few days of travel with Jesus and they have a hard time keeping their eyes open while Jesus is praying on this mountain. And then all of a sudden they were shocked into wakefulness at what they were about to behold on top of that mountain. Now imagine for a second what it was like to be in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes as they are witnessing This event on top of the mountain. The passage tells us that afterwards they kept silent. You get the sense that what they saw in that moment was so beyond their capacity to understand, so beyond any category of anything that they had witnessed before, that words just failed them to describe what they witnessed on this mountain with Jesus. And yet we know that despite their silence, this was an incredibly powerful event that they experienced too big to really put into words. And so I think for Peter, James, and John, they walked away never being the same again because of what they witnessed in this moment. And I think what it did for them is it established three things that I want us to see this morning, three things about Jesus Christ that they would never forget after this moment. And I think the first thing that it really established for them is who Jesus was. It established for them Jesus' divinity, that He was divine, that He was indeed the Son of God. It says in verse 29, "...as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered, and His clothing became dazzling white." Mark, in his account, uh, in chapter uh, 9, verse 3 of the Gospel of Mark, he writes that Christ's clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You get the sense that that the brightness was so great that the power of the bolt of a bolt of lightning, the power and brightness of a bolt of lightning was captured in that moment and spread out as they viewed Jesus Christ in all of his radiance. The gospel writer Matthew in chapter 17 says, his face, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Imagine for a second as you look at the sun and you can hardly handle its brilliance. We can't even look directly at it. Well, Matthew says his face shone shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. You see, the disciples were always struggling with understanding the identity and purpose of Jesus. As you read the Gospels, that becomes very clear. At moments, they would get it right. Think back to to, to Peter's confession, where Christ says, who do the people say that I am? And, and Peter, in this, in this stroke of brilliance, says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But that was an exception to the norm. By and large, Jesus' disciples consistently were slow to understand and grasp who Jesus was and why he came to this earth. But I think in this moment, for Peter, James, and John, this certainly established to them that Jesus was divine. Yes, he was fully human, but at the same time, he was fully divine. You see, his humanity was not hard for his disciples to grasp. They spent three years with him. They ate with him. They slept in the same home with them. They traveled with him for three years. But for this moment, for these three disciples, for this moment, the divinity of Jesus Christ was laid bare for them to see, and they were blown away as a result of it. I often imagine that they were confused later. Later on at the end of Jesus's public ministry, as they watched him be crucified, knowing full well the power of his own divinity that was at his disposal, that was, at, that was available to him, and yet he willingly suffered, allowing himself to be crucified. Matthew tells us that they were so overwhelmed that when they saw this, they fell to the ground in absolute, complete fear. It's probably what I would have done had I been in their shoes. And yet Matthew tells us that Jesus goes to them, he gently touches them, and says, "'Rise.'" have no fear. For centuries after Christ's life, death, and resurrection, uh, Christians would really wrestle with the same thing His first disciples did as well. They would wrestle with understanding who Jesus was and, and why He came. And then eventually, the Christian community settled on one very powerful doctrine that they felt was reflected well in the Scriptures, and that is the doctrine that Jesus was simultaneously fully human and fully divine. He was fully God and fully man all at once. And they understood that that's what the Scriptures taught. And when they came to this doctrine, they no doubt came to this passage is one of the most beautiful pictures of the full humanity of Jesus Christ and yet the full divinity of him on display. Our passage demonstrates both to us, that Jesus was divine, that he was not just an ordinary man or an ordinary teacher or an ordinary rabbi, but he was God in the flesh. In fact, Peter, in his epistle, after years of reflecting on this, writes these words we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I have to think that Peter was thinking of this moment when he penned those words in 1 Peter. And so our passage establishes his divinity, but I think what it also establishes here is Jesus's superiority, his superiority that he is above all The passage tells us that there are two individuals with Jesus on this mountain when he is transfigured. And both of those individuals are in some sort of of glorified state as well. And what it tells us is they're talking with Jesus, that they're having a conversation. It says they're having a conversation about Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. And if you actually look at that word in Greek, the word departure actually means Jesus' exodus from Jerusalem. In effect, what they're talking about is Jesus' work of redemption that is about to be accomplished by his death and resurrection. What a powerful conversation! That must have been for Peter, James, and John to witness. Now, they can, they can hardly believe their eyes, first of all, because of Jesus' radiance. But they can hardly believe their eyes because of the two men who are with Jesus as well. It tells us that Moses is there in his glorified state. Moses, the leader who brought Israel out of their Egyptian enslavement. You read about him In the book of Exodus, this is the same Moses in the burning bush, uh, the same Moses that went up on top of the mountain and communed with God, and when he came down from the mountain, his face was so radiant that the people could hardly look upon him without shielding their eyes. This is the same Moses that, that went on top of the mountain and received the law from God, the Ten Commandments, and now he is standing there on the mountain Conversing with Jesus. It also tells us that Elijah is there. Elijah was uh, the quintessential prophet, the, the, the prophet amongst all the other prophets in the Old Testament, the one who stared down the prophets of Baal and, and called down fire from heaven. He was the prophet who performed countless miracles that demonstrated the power of God. And he was one of the unique individuals in the scriptures. Who never actually died. If you look back at the story of Elijah, he never actually died. Instead, he was carried by chariots into the presence of God after his ministry. And so there's Moses, there's Elijah. They're standing with Jesus, they're conversing with one another. You have the representative of the law, you have the representative of the prophets, both conversing with Jesus, signaling to all the world that the hope of the Old Testament is being realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter, I love Peter in this story, Peter immediately wants to rush into action. That was Peter's MO. That's always what he did. He wanted to to rush into action, and the passage tells us he wanted to build three different tents or tabernacles for each and every one of these three figures to dwell in. And there's there's kind of two theories as to what Peter's actually doing here. One is he just simply wants them to stay. And so he he wants to build a little shelter so they can stay and, and Peter can extend this moment a little bit longer um, and and witness more of it. Uh, another theory is that what Peter's doing here dips into... A long standing tradition in Jewish history. Uh, the Jewish people had a feast, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a seven day feast where they would literally, it's also called the Feast of Booths, they would literally build booths or tabernacles, and they would dwell in these tabernacles and tents for seven days in order to remember the time in which they lived in the wilderness the time in which they wandered before they came to the promised land. And so this was part of the Jewish culture. They would do this each year, live in these tents for seven days, and it would signal to them, it would remind them of a chapter in their history, but it also had significance for them to look forward when God would bring an end to all things. And so a lot of people think that's what Peter is trying to do here. And and what it means is this, that Peter, witnessing this conversation, believes that this is the end of the world, that this is it. The world is about to end, and so we need to do what we need to do to signal the end of the world, because Jesus is here, Moses is here, and Elijah is here. Now, what's interesting is Luke seems to indicate that Peter was wrong by doing this, or at least a little off in his request. It says, Luke writes this, not knowing what he was actually saying. And that has always been Peter's pattern in the gospel, to to speak first and to think or to dwell on things later. I, I resemble that from time to time. What most people think Peter has gotten it wrong here is because of this that by Peter's request, he was seemingly signaling that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were all on the same playing field, that they were all equal in God's story of redemption. But Luke helps us to understand that that was wrong, and it was wrong because ultimately Jesus is superior Jesus is superior to Moses. He is superior to Elijah. These were heroes in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish faith. But as good as Moses and Elijah were, Jesus Christ was far superior. He was above all. And so all the prophets, all the biblical heroes, the whole Old Testament indeed points to the supremacy of, of Jesus Christ. Moses and Elijah, they were great and wonderful men, but at the end of the day, they were all part of the cloud of witnesses that pointed to the greatness and the wonder of Jesus Christ. One of the commentators, Daryl Bach, says this. He said, in the hall of fame that is made up of all the great figures of the Bible, no one occupies a space alongside Jesus. He is Jesus unique. And so we see here the, the divinity of Jesus is established, the uniqueness, the superiority of Jesus is established here. But finally what we see is that the Father's approval is established as well. Verse 35 says this, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. You see, once again, God the Father shows up. But this time he shows up in the form of a cloud that envelops everyone who is standing on this mountain. And God declares for a second time that Jesus Christ is his Son, his Chosen One, and his Beloved. He reminds all those who were there and all of us reading now that the Son is the object of the full and perfect approval of the Father. It reminds us that Jesus lived fully to please the Father. His sole mission was to execute the will and the design of the Father, and all of this He did perfectly. And in so, He received the the full and unqualified approval of God the Father. What's so beautiful about this passage is it tells us so simply what the response of Jesus' disciples were to be to this episode. And then what our response to be ought to be as we read it later on and it's very simple. The response is this. Listen. Listen to Jesus listen to his words. You see, Jesus came to provide a different exodus. That's part of what is being demonstrated here. Just as Moses led God's people from a physical enslavement at the hands of the Egyptian people, Jesus was about to head into Jerusalem to secure a different kind of exodus. He came to deliver his people from something far deeper than just a physical enslavement. He came to save his people from the enslavement of sin and death. And in order to do this, the gospel reminds us that Jesus would need to live a sinless life. That's really what all these approvals are about, to remind us that the only one to earn the full approval of God the Father was Jesus Christ himself. He perfectly followed the law of God. He perfectly followed the will and the design of God, and he needed to. Jesus needed to live a sinless life according to God's design. But what the story of redemption also tells us is that, yes, he needed to lead a sinless life, but he also needed to die a sinner's death. He needed to be that Passover lamb. He needed to be that perfect sacrifice. An innocent one would need to die in the place of the guilty. And in so doing, Jesus makes our exodus from sin and death possible. And so our response should be simple, to listen to him, because Jesus alone has the words Of eternal life. And when we do, when we listen to him, when we place our trust in him, we secure our own personal exodus. By placing our trust in him, he deals with our sin and he gives us his righteousness. You see, listening to him means that even though we are sinful, we can at the same time receive the approval of God the Father. Because only in Jesus can we ultimately be approved. Only in Jesus can we ultimately be chosen. Only in Jesus can we be beloved by the Father. And friends, this is why Jesus has to be, must be central, not only to the story of redemption, but must be central in our own lives as well. He has to be central to the church. He has to be central to our lives. He is the beginning, He is the end, and He is everything in between. He is divine, God in the flesh. He is superior. Only in Him can life be found nowhere else He has secured the approval of God the Father, not just for himself, but for us as well. And so our response is simply to listen to him and to place our trust in him. Let's pray.